0: Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Petko Stoyanov and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host... Peko Stoyanov. Peko, hi.
1: Hey, Rachel. <laughs> you know, it's, what, so what are we going to talk about today? Ooh, this is I, I, I'm kind of- So
0: excited. Yes, 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 yes. So uh, we're actually welcoming, welcoming back to the podcast, Matt Bianco. He's president of Fedway consulting, consulting and an expert on all things related to electric vehicles and charging integration within the US federal government ecosystem and beyond. Um, and as you know, this is, this is such an exciting topic. Uh, it's so many questions and passionate points of view on, on how we as a society and, you know, with government leading the charge, transition to EV in the next decade. I mean, Matt, welcome back. This is going to be fun.
2: I'm excited to be back. I was uh, I was anxiously awaiting getting some updates so I could get back to you guys and join you again. So thank you for having me.
0: Definitely. And so many updates. I mean, we were, before we got on the podcast, we were talking about um, you know, really, just all the funding and, and and initiatives, and you know, the the holistic approach to try to, you know, how do you make this a reality, particularly within the government? And and you've been having some really good conversations on where confusion lies, and I'd love if you could kind of dispel some of the the confusion and myths that people are are operating with them.
2: Yeah, yeah. For, first off, I you know I'm I'm so excited to talk about this whenever I have a chance because you know it's just that topic that when you're at a you know party at a house or you're with family or whoever it is they always have questions and and there are there is a lot of you know differing thoughts and and, and understandings of, of EVs so um, I, I love that I can have this chance to, to clear it up so um, so there's two sides of the, the coin let's say so there's the NEVI funding which comes from the infrastructure funds and things like that that the government put something like 120 billion dollars toward And it's going to be divvied up to the states and the states will have their decisions on getting these charging hubs, fast charging hubs. It's going to be very focused on level three fast charging. So you're looking at like 150 kilowatts and above. Um, Typically, they want like four or five ports of charging that can charge at that rate simultaneously. So it's going to be heavy infrastructure. Um, So it'll help support not only. You know, families on trips, but also you know, medium and heavy duty trucks nice. that are on their trips and things like that. So, just get these charging hubs. So that's the first set there. Then they're going to start opening that up to, you know, the states allowing to you know give grants and things to private industry, so people can start putting that in for employees to use and 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 things like that. So that side of the house, I'm not super uh, you know a super expert on, but but uh, but it's an important side. Mm-hmm. And the the Joint Energy Office with DOE. Um, and, and even some GSA involvement and, and things like that. They're really heavily involved in that. So there's a government uh, presence as far as guidance mm-hmm. on how to how to make this happen. They're doing a ton of research for them. So the government's involved from that standpoint. They're funding it. They're helping educate. They're helping set up, the you know, get the wheels turning on it and that type of thing. Then mm-hmm. the states will take over. Mm-hmm. The side I'm most, uh, you know, an, most of an expert on is, the, the, the federal charging ecosystem. So they have executive order one, four, oh, five, seven, which is requiring them to have all their new purchases be electric by 2027. So that's light duty. So the medium and heavy duty will be 2035. I've also heard and seen from the uh, military perspective, they're even looking at, you know, electrifying tactical vehicles by 2050. So there's, you know, 2050 sounds far away, but <laughs> we're in 2023 now, and it's like, we're going to be 2030 before we know it. So um, so they're very lofty goals. It's going to be challenging, but that's why they these executive orders are always challenging. So that's where I lie. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I work with federal agencies on a regular basis. Every day, I'm talking to agencies that are either have gotten EVs, and they got blindsided, and they need some way to charge them. And they're just throwing them into a 110 outlet for now and getting a few miles back. And it's, you know, they can't control who uses those plugs. They can't, you know, report on the information, all of that stuff. So there's, there's agencies like that. There's agencies like DHS. I I like naming them because they're really the trailblazer. They have a, a team of about 60 or 70 people that are on their electrification team. So they're planning out infrastructure, pushing it down to the, to you know, to their components like you know, like uh, Coast Guard, like Fletzy, like uh, you know, Secret Service, things like that. As they start to get vehicles, so they're planning ahead. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have the infrastructure in place before the vehicles get there. Yes. They also had the first federal law enforcement vehicle with CBP. They did a, a ribbon cutting here in DC uh, related to that at the Saint Elizabeths campus. So wow. they're even electrifying some of the law enforcement. So that needs hefty charging. Most of their charging can be done at Just the level two rates. So I'm getting into the details here a little bit, but they have they have to plan and that's gonna be the key. And then they have to fund it. So right now they don't really have a pot of money that's dedicated to this type of infrastructure. So they can move money around and do some things. Some agencies like DHS, like military, they have dedicated funds for this, but a lot of agencies just don't have the funding. So they're waiting and they're being told they have to get these vehicles. So um, it's kind of that conundrum and, and, you know, chicken egg theory, that type of thing. Cause you need the charging to get the vehicles. So it's, it's, it's exciting, but that I wanted to just clarify those two sides yeah. of the house. NEVI funding is different than what, you know, what we're doing on the electrification of the federal fleet and postal services included in that. And that's, that's an exciting project I was involved in too. They're, they're going to be going all electric here, uh, in the next five, 10 years. Wow.
1: Yeah. Matt, I'm just kind of curious from a cybersecurity standpoint, I mean, yep. what are some of the risks around EVs or charging infrastructure that we might not be aware of that we should be aware of, either on the personal vehicle or on the government vehicle or both?
2: Yeah, no, it's a good question. I actually, for for a year in between, I left ChargePoint, who is, they're the market leader of charging stations uh, outside of, obviously, the Tesla ecosystem, um, but they, i in a year, I left ChargePoint and I did this on the side as Fedway Consulting. I worked for a company called Hacker One, and I worked a lot with DOT and and doing this proactive hacking of the vehicles and that type of thing. That's you know I haven't gotten involved in the vehicle side of things from a from a you know a security perspective, but I know that's being thought of because that's one thing. These are fully integrated systems. You know, as as an EV driver, Petco, you know as well. These are like driving computers. Yeah. I mean, they just are. They, you know, they're they're very hackable, that's for sure. But, you know, they are looking ahead of that, you know, so that side of the house, I'm not a super expert on, but from a charging infrastructure side of things, um, you know, I think there's a a few things that that people probably don't understand, you know, even people that are putting in charging stations and, and installing them don't quite understand because they'll even ask, do we need a data line for these level two chargers? You really don't need So with a level two charger, which is about 20, 25 miles of range per hour up to about, say, 50, depending on the kilowatts, I can get into the I I can nerd out on the text and specs of of uh, of level two charging. But it's it ranges from seven to about 19.2 kilowatts of output to the vehicle. Um, So in that there is no data that's transferred. So when you plug in the vehicle, it is just an electrical signaling. So it's just a handshake of the vehicle. And the station i can give this much power as the station i can take this much power as the vehicle no data so the data is all captured through a network charging station through an rfid process so you're going to be tapping your rfid card that's associated to your fleet vehicle You, you can anonymize the data within you know within the software that that's that's controlling all of this and then you can set access policies based on those cards so the fleet will have their cards only that card can open that station as you load them into the system. And then from a driver POV or a personal vehicle, drive, they call them POVs, uh, personally owned vehicles versus government owned vehicles. So they start, they are starting to open these up to personally owned vehicles. That person will have their own RFID card that they're using around town to log into stations and pay for charging sessions. So then they just start opening it up to these personal vehicles. Um, and I'm a big believer not to digress a little bit but I'm a big believer that let's use this infrastructure for personal vehicles too you're putting the infrastructure in yeah. they're gonna be using them at night mostly because they're gonna they're you know drive their vehicle 30 50 miles they charge it in you know plug it in every night yeah. and you know they don't need a fast charger so I'm a big believer and use that for POVs, you know, during the day. And that's a little different side of the cyber house cuz that's all covered under PCI compliance and the government doesn't care about that data as much. They care, but they know it's it's covered and it's not government owned data, so they're not quite as concerned. So it's the GOB side from a cyber perspective they're most concerned. And from level 2, the only thing you need to worry about is that authentication process through the RFID the vehicle does not talk to the station. Right. Level three, they, there is something called ISO one five one one five one one eight, which is plug-in charge. So Petco, it's like charge, you know, charging at a Tesla supercharger. You plug in, it knows who you are, it knows to charge your car, and it's a quick, seamless, you know, process. That's great because it's a closed ecosystem. But when you get into other chargers that are universal, now they're interacting with many different vehicles. So that's. Still not quite there yet, and the the cyber, you know, cyber risks really lie in that because now you're plugging it in; it knows everything about the vehicle, you know, and and you know you can also probably hack that to get into GPS data and, and that type of thing from where the vehicle has been and that type of thing. I'm sure there's lots of data that can be gleaned that way. So that ISO 15118, everyone wants to be. Uh, compliant to that but it's it hasn't really been implemented too much so still with level t- 3 charging for the most part you're still using your RFID card at EVgo Electrify America charge point stations wherever it is you're using your your account and your card to pay for the session and and it's not really talking and they all the last thought on cyber is they all connect via cellular Ooh. so typically you don't want a hardwired connection LAN connection to the station you want to use that that cellular connection to you know, be sure that there's no conduit to the networks and that's it.
1: Matt, I just want to step back a little bit. So level one yeah. is just a regular 110 outlet that I might plug in, right? Correct. Level, Correct. level two is kind of that dryer vent, you know, 240 volt that I might plug in, you know. Correct. Uh, not adjusting for the amps and everything else, right? But that's right. the size of it. And then level three is the huge ones we see. Usually we think of when we see the chargers for Teslas and others that are on the road. Mm-hmm that will charge potentially like you know 20 miles a minute or something like that it's, you know crazy yep. correct so those so the level 2 it doesn't require internet cuz it's just a regular power but level 3 is the one that typically is going to require more internet back and forth and they're not just high, because you have to coordinate the charging speed the battery health and everything else because it is such a high voltage is that about right yeah they're
2: they're typically still going to connect via cellular but then now when you plug in the vehicle, there's going to be a lot more communication. There's actually a communication mm-hmm. line from the station to the vehicle compared to level two where there's not. So there's more communication between the, the, the vehicle and the station. That's the that's the, the critical piece. Most stations now will 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 connect via cellular and, and use that connection to control the power, you know, do demand charges, you know, all kinds of stuff that you can do behind the scenes from that standpoint.
1: Is it your belief that the primary risks outside of the vehicle are really just a level three charging because the data line that might be there or?
2: A good question. No, And, and I, I talk with agencies about this all the time because I try to make sure they understand. Like I, I have a, an intelligence agency that I work with where I convince them that, hey, don't worry too much. You, you can put whatever data you want. You don't have to put that it's a, a Chevy Bolt. You can put it's vehicle number one. You don't put a tag number, you don't put any type of data, you can just anonymize it at level two, and you just use that RFID. And as long as that RFID serial number is allowed to charge the vehicle, you can't glean a lot of data from that. You could see charging behaviors, how long they're charging, what station they're at, you know, that type of thing. If you hacked into it, you can't just normally see that. So with level three, it's very similar now. Um, There's not really a whole lot of risks but because of that data line and when ISO 15118 gets implemented, yes, that's where that risk is going to be because there's that that communication with the vehicle. So that is definitely kind of the way I view it. Level 2, you you really don't have a whole lot to worry about. Maybe the vehicle more than the station. With level 3 charging, you probably have to have a, you know, worry a little bit about both, you know, the vehicle itself as well as the charging
1: and last time, I think when you were here on the podcast, we were talking, GSA was determining whether it's going to be FedRAMP or uh, NIST 800-171 for compliance for the federal vehicle charging. I think GSA has determined it's going to be FedRAMP. I'm, I'm kind of curious on two things. Like what, you know, what made them decide it requires FedRAMP? Like what data is, I mean, if I'm just using a regular charger, like a two, a level two, where it's like a driver, what data is there that's sensitive that would require it to be FedRAMPed?
2: Yeah, so it's it's so interesting because, you know, they went down that pathway of NIST 800-171. They wanted some type of certification. Well, NIST 800 requires CUI, you know, or or the opposite, I'm not I'm not as as intelligent with that, but but because of that, you know, lack of CUI, then it couldn't really fall into into NIST 800, so they decided we need to, you know, approach it a different way. So what they decided on, the way they're going to do this is you're going to have a GovCloud for the you know for let's say it's charge point because that's what i know the best charge point has their network operating system that has everything mixed together commercial states local municipalities federal government all of that's in one one silo so what they wanted was to have their own gov cloud it's fedramp tailored so it's just a low impact level that they've determined it as which um you know really is about the same lift as a NIST 800 lift as well. You just have to, you know, report a little bit more often and that type of thing. So, so they decided that that's what they wanted, that that data still is important. And they, you know, I've been on these calls where they dig down into the data, but they're also going as far as, okay, if a ticket is opened on the system through JIRA or something like that, is JIRA FedRAMP certified? Making sure that the, you know, all those mechanism, mechanisms are set. So, the two-factor authentication are you using a you know someone that 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 is we want you to use products that are FedRAMP certified so they're just following the data again that's my frustration petco is there's not a whole lot of data that really matters that much so i do feel like they're you know they're going overkill a little bit when you get into telematics and like geotab where you have you know gps data and that type of thing that's not my dog i promise <laughs> Um, I don't have one of those. So, so yeah, so that's, that's my biggest frustration is how how important is this data? You know, if you're if you're if you're uh, protecting the data from a telematics level, you know, you you really don't need to worry as much about the charging sessions themselves. And again, the vehicle is probably more important to worry about than the charging station, but they've decided that, you know, that's the pathway they want to go. So
1: No, I I can imagine like a lot of it has to do with if I can get a history of how often someone charges, what vehicle's there, I have a pattern of life potentially for that vehicle or that individual. Or I can get a a view of how many vehicles are owned by each agency and I can then identify where they've been or where they charge often by agency. So I think a lot of it's just about that aggregation of data or the metadata associated to it is probably what they want some assurances. And that makes, I think, you know, so you know, definitely a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I am curious, though, if just from charge point standpoint, like you had mentioned earlier, is the charging infrastructure dedicated to them, or are they allowed to? Like, can I can I charge that if I use a charge point infrastructure for a mm-hmm. personal vehicle, or let's say a government vehicle? Does is it is charge point data smart enough or the infrastructure OS smart enough to say, oh, this goes to? our commercial instance or this data billing data goes to the government infrastructure.
2: Yeah. So, so the way it's done is through the RFID cards, through the serial numbers. So okay. actually the the POVs could use their, their iPhone app or something like that and start a session that way they can tap to charge. They can do all kinds of cool stuff that the government probably won't because they'll just use the physical RFID card to avoid any, any worries with, you know, and you can't download the app to, to a government issued phone and we'd have to go through a whole process for that. They may eventually get there, but So yes, it does know. So what you do in the software is you tag an RFID to each fleet vehicle. And so when that fleet vehicle pulls in and taps the station, it knows this is a fleet vehicle and it captures the data appropriately and and that type of thing. When it's a personal vehicle, it really doesn't worry too much about that person's vehicle information and that type of thing. It's going to just packet that information, charge their credit card. That's all going to be done outside of the the GovCloud. We're going to keep it separated. Um, So then that's all PCI compliant. They'll run that session. And then the thing that the government cares about the most is ChargePoint doesn't make money on those charging sessions. They send 90% of it back to the government, 10% for like processing it and things. So they're processing those payments for the federal government. Government, they don't want to touch that information. They want to keep that separate. So then we usually will ACH that payment to an entity you know, at the end of the, at the end of the month, you know, here's your money back that we've collected from your POV drivers. Agencies are doing that. Some of them are putting it into like a reimbursable utility account or something like that. They are concerned about that. We don't want that to happen anymore. So typically we would then just send a paper check to, you know, and obviously government spends money very well. They don't take money very well. It's very difficult for them to take money without a third party of some sort. So we send that check back and now they have to process it and hopefully keep it in their, their appropriated budget. It's only the funny thing is it's only a couple hundred dollars a month, even if you have a good handful of stations. It's not a lot of money so that they don't they're not worried about that. They were worried more about we don't want government ACH, you know, uh, information within the system. So get rid of that. We'll just have you send
1: a paper check. And then that keeps that side of the house clean from the POV perspective. So it's, it's interesting what yeah, I didn't factor in the, the bank data as being sensitive. Mm-hmm. That's interesting.
2: Yeah. And it's, it, it varies. It's, you know, some agencies send it to a treasury account. They have to set up a treasury account. Some agencies, you know, use their utility and they just get it into an account that pays that utility. Um, pay.gov is another way that other agencies are starting to, to use that, which is essentially treasury as well. So yeah, it's, it makes sense to to keep that out of the picture, but then they trust that we're protecting the data from the personal drivers' perspective, their credit card information, all of that, because it's all. And they, they honestly, they're not worried about it. That's they're signing an agreement that says that their personal information could be compromised or whatever it may be when they sign up for their charger, charge point account. So. They don't want to. They want hands off from a POV perspective. We all we care about is the data associated to the GOVs, and we'll just let those people use our stations when nice. when they're allowed to and the agency is able yeah. to.
1: Oh, that was great insight. I, I'm kind of curious, like what other barriers or major. Obst- I mean, given that the Biden administration or we're trying is trying to electrify its whole 100 of its feet, fleet by 2027, like what other major obstacles do you see or? you think we're on track? Yeah. I mean, what role do you see companies like ChargePoint and and other, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, I think Palo Sungard and Beam and other ones playing in this securing, not just securing it, but getting to 100 percent?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because it's so Fedway consulting after I left ChargePoint, then I worked for HackerOne for a year, and then it got so busy, I decided let me just go full bore with this charging stuff. So um, some, of the, some of the agreements and things that I, you know, companies I work with are, Apollo Sun Guard, which their role is really just a service disabled veteran owned small business. We know what that does in the government. Um, they've had three blanket purchase agreements with the GSA. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so the 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 the, the, uh, the the, you know, that's really just the contractual kind of side of things. Now, they've been a mainstay. They've been doing this for 10 years. And and, you know, this new blanket purchase agreement is what requires FedRAMP, which is the new kind of certification. Then there's BEAM. BEAM. You can put any charging station onto the EV arc, which is uh, basically the infrastructure. Instead of doing a grid tied pull of electricity, you're going to place this into a parking spot. Army just bought 367 of these. Uh, VA bought 140 of them. DHS bought 32, and they're going to buy about 50 more this year. So it, it, that's going to bring in the resiliency. And that's what the government's looking for is this resiliency. And it also avoid some of the challenges that the charge points of the world are going to have in getting their stations in the ground is there's huge supply chain demand or uh, uh, delays for transformers and electrical panels and things that they need to upgrade to get this power to their site because some of it's antiquated with the agencies and and sites so that that's going to help avoid that something like that um they're starting to look at tying these stations into microgrids that, that are just essentially batteries that, you know, feed from solar. Let's keep it resilient so we don't have to worry about these. But those are huge projects. That's why the EV arc is, you know, $80,000 and you pop it into a spot and, and it's portable and they can move it, they can stow it. And, you know, that's why I think they're, they're glomming onto that. But it's slower charging. It's level two charging. But if you're only driving like the Army 15, 20 miles a day on average with their light duty vehicle... You just plug it in every night, you're you're good to go. It's gonna charge in an hour or maybe two. So um, so that's those are the challenges I think that are the biggest is the supply chain, you know, and 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 getting the infrastructure in place to do this. There's delays in the vehicles as well. So the demand of the vehicles, you know, I talk to agencies every day that we're expecting five Ford Lightnings. Uh, when are you getting them? We don't know. They they, they said it was gonna be last month. Then they'll call me back in December like this year, watch, I know I'll get calls in July. Oh, we got vehicles now. All of a sudden they showed up and we don't have any way to charge them. What do we do? So that's where a product that's, you know, that's off grid is beneficial, but you know, if it depends on the vehicle and that type of thing, but they're, they're, those are the biggest challenges I think is that infrastructure. And we all know that the, we don't fully know the effect this is going to have on the grid and that type of thing. But Um, but I don't dabble in that too much because that's kind of, you know, above my pay grade, but, but I think the resiliency side is important. So, you know, talking about microgrids and that type of thing, keeping it, keeping it separate.
0: Well, it seems like an innovation opportunity, right?
2: Absolutely. I think that's where beam really has, has thrived, you know, because they've got, basically it's got, it's a a piece of infrastructure that sits in a parking spot it's got a 43 kilowatt hour battery it's got a 4.3 kilowatt solar array it charges it gets about it produces about 265 e-miles in a day so even if you're driving a couple of vehicles and you have a dual port charging station on that you can you know drive 100 miles and have plenty of power uh, it, you can feed from the grid, like in scenarios that maybe it's cloudy for a couple months. Like we, you know, we're going to be putting some of them in Alaska, and you know, where you're not going to produce those 265 e miles, but you'll yeah. still produce energy. So I think that's that's going to be a way for people to to get around it. There's there's other other companies looking at that innovation and and how to how to get something down fast without the need for electricity charge points. Working on something and and. Yeah. It, has, has introduced something called a, a skid mount, which is the, the electrical panel is on this skid and there's two fast chargers and that skid can be moved when needed and just essentially plugged into the, to the building um, a little bit more to it than that. But, but the idea there is portability and things like that too. Um, Cause you may have power here, then you may need that power. Well, let's move it over to this other area and that type of thing. So that lots of innovation going on. Critical,
0: Yeah. It's, Ilya, I know someone who's got an electric vehicle or sidebar and she ran out of juice and had to get get a tow truck to pick up her car and take it back home so she could plug it in. So I think, you know, it, innovations in that portability would be kind of amazing.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I don't know what their their deal is now, but um, there, there's a company called Spark Charge and they were on Shark Tank and they had and I, I have to look up and see where they've gone with this. But they had a portable charging station. Now it charged at like, if I remember right, 12 or 15 kilowatts of charge, which is equivalent to about, about 10, 15 miles of range per hour. So you'd have to plug it in for like an, you know, yeah. a little right. bit of time, but they were going to try and improve that. Again, I don't know a whole lot about their technology, but the idea was, I think something like that, you know, you have triple have it where they can bring it out and, you know, give you a charge enough to get to a, exactly. a charging station. And, they, right. and, and, it takes time, you know, as an EV driver myself and Pecco, you'll, you'll probably agree with this. The winter time is the toughest part. You know, I drive from DC to upstate New York and I, I get probably only about 60, maybe 60, 70% of my, my available power. Now they have, you know, heating that they're working on to help with the batteries and that type of thing, you know, and some of the new vehicles will help with that, but it's still, it's always going to have that effect. So if you're not really well-versed and you just get the vehicle or, you know, you get into a predicament where you haven't planned your trip out. It could be challenging. It's going to get easier as all these stations go in. But
0: can can I just ask too? I, I think, sorry, Pecco but I have to ask the solar question. Yeah, is I mean, is 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 that a pathway forward too? I mean, having the little solar panels on the top of the car with the sun powering it or regenerating. Power? There,
2: there have been companies that have tried that. I just don't think they can generate enough power. They also had there was something called an electric highway at some point. I don't know if they were going to do that where you can have inductive charging as you drive. It just wirelessly charges, but you think of the infrastructure demand cost wise, maintenance wise. I mean, it's, it's really kind of a little bit crazy, even inductive charging in general, you know, it's, it's, it's got its limitations and things like that. But, but the solar panels, there is a company that tried that. I don't know where they ended up. They may, they may still be working on it. I think it could supplement, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, create
1: enough yeah, power right. to, you know, to, to maintain,
0: gotcha.
1: but it's a good thought. I think Fisker, <laughs> one of the other brands was actually putting s- solar panels on top of their car. But I know, it's, I think the Cybertruck, from what I've seen, there's add-ons now that you can buy a solar array while you're stationary, or camping and charge the vehicle at least, you know, that's awesome. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I've actually I, been fortunate. I've had great, I, I've had great range of my, my Tesla. My, my issue I find is my driving, not the weather. <laughs> so I hear you launching yeah, a lot of fun. The, uh, Yeah,
2: off the stop at the stoplights, launching off of that. That'll burn your battery pretty quick too. And going going seventy five, eighty, and a sixty five. That's what I tend to do too. I no, think. no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> they won't. They won't find me. I'm not worried about that. <laughs> But yeah, so the other thing to think about with all of this resiliency, and it popped in my head as we were going – is vehicle to grid. So there's a lot to learn about this. But like you look at the Ford Lightning, you know, it's got a pretty large battery. I don't know the text specs from the vehicles. I should know it better than I do. But like my Tesla has a 100 kilowatt hour battery. I believe theirs is like 200 kilowatt hours. You don't get the efficiency because it's a bigger truck and things like that. So the, the range is about the same, but the battery is bigger. Mm. But you they have a two, 240 volt plug that you can actually feed back power and use it as a generator you know, currently right now, like if you, if your power went out, you were in Texas and the grid went down or whatever, you could plug your, your Ford lightning into your, into your house and and feed it like that. So there's lots of really cool Uh innovation from a vehicle perspective where it can do bi-directional charging and things like that, which will help support the grid ultimately. Again, I'm not a super expert on that, but if you have, you know, especially large fleets, you know, if like Postal service, if they were able or like school, school buses or, you know, things like that, if they're able to take that power at the end of the day, feed it back into the grid and then charge up overnight, you know, there's there's this balance where it's, you know, they, they, they could they could support the grid that way. So I think that's going to be a critical piece, too. I don't know a whole yeah. lot about it, but
1: something to think about. Man, actually, It's funny. I actually looked into it. There are some countries that have it in their regulation for like the power standards that they actually support that. There is definitely a – you need to have like a transformer to be able to convert that over. But I can see a yeah. huge need. I mean just the example of the buses. Imagine you know school runs out of power. Well, maybe we just plug the bus right into it. You don't even realize power right now. We just plugged it in. All of a sudden, we're powering the whole school with a couple fleets of buses. Or in the case of emergencies, maybe a hospital or something else, we could power very quickly versus yeah. a generator that is more dirty power and tends to uh, hit electrical – the electrical appliances yeah. harder.
2: You're right. And and as I talk, we're on here talking about cybersecurity, you know, mainly, and that, that opens up more cyber concerns, obviously. So there's going to be some some work behind the scenes that I know, you know, there are a couple of agencies that the energy labs are getting very involved with the cyber aspects of this, yeah. um, you know, making sure that everybody is, is covered. So certainly they're looking into that. Vehicle to grid is a huge conversation. It's just not. At the implementation stage, there's some pilots and some things that some groups have done, but, but, um, but yeah, the cyber side of it, that's going to open up a little bit more because now you're, you know, you've, you've got reliance on that if you, if you do run out of power. So yeah. they could just tear it off, you know, attack the grid, then attack the, the vehicle, to grid, and now you're completely down and that type of thing. So.
1: Or, or what about the autonomous side? If you've got autonomous vehicles out there, that that becomes now common. What if it says, oh, I'm running out of power. Let me just go charge myself, you know, and yep. self-charging. Yeah. I guess it would be autonomous cars that are self-charging, kind of like that. <laughs> uh, I think it's the Roomba vacuum cleaner that charges itself when it runs that's out of right. power. That's right. It goes back to the home base. Your yes. <laughs>
2: so
0: do we see – It will
1: get there. It will get there.
0: I mean that's – it's it's an interesting path of discussion too if you follow it, right? Remember you know, back in the day people would put a hose in somebody's gas tank and then siphon out the gas – you know what what does that look like in the in the EV world of someone trying to siphon off electricity from a car to to get their car going? I mean is is that kind of the the yeah. next wave of crime as it relates to cars or, you know, I am fascinated to see where that can yeah. go.
2: Yeah, it's it's challenging. That would have to require that bidirectional charging yeah. so you could actually pull it out of there, but I don't think that's too much of a worry. I think more of um, you know the the policing of charging is going to be the big thing I mean you see it all over Twitter now and things like that too where you know a, an ice car or an ice vehicle parks you know where where it's supposed to be vehicle charging and you can't move them I mean there's nothing you can do other than physically moving them the charging stations have it you know have rules in the in the systems and pricing policies that after two hours you can charge someone you know more money in three hours like idle type fees right. you can get people off the station there but but from a I think it's just the, the, the police have you know, someone sitting there for too long or, uh, you know, unplugs a vehicle or something like that. Most of them have locking mechanisms and that type of thing. You know, I get asked that a lot. Right. I'm digressing a little bit, but I get asked that a lot. Can you drive away with a with a with a cord in your st- in your vehicle like you could a gas, you know, right. a, a, a gas hose? And most of the I know the Tesla does. And I most of these vehicles have mechanisms that you can't even engage in to drive with the um, car plugged in. Gotcha. I would say 90 99% of them have that. I don't know if there's a vehicle out there that doesn't. But I get asked that because, you know, the agencies want to have spare parts. Right. Do we need spare cords if somebody drives off with one? Right. Well, someone could cut the cord. We see that a lot where people, you know, don't like EVs and they'll go and just, you know, cut the charging cord and make it unusable and, you know, smash it with a baseball bat. We've seen all kinds right. of stuff, you know, to just cause they're against the EVs or whatever it may yeah. be. And, and that's, yeah, it's, that's the type of, I think crime we'll see around mm-hmm. it is, is that type of stuff. Not so much, you know, pulling of the electricity and that type of thing, so but it's, it's great. It's a crazy, it's a crazy world right now. Really with, with EVs. It's, well,
0: and how does the, the future of gas got- stations, right? I mean, to that point, it's now I'm starting to imagine what happens to my shell station in the next 10 years. Yeah.
2: Well, the good—that's the good thing. I mean, Shell has something called a Recharge, so Shell's in the game. Then you've got—you uh, know—pretty much every gas company is is trying to figure out how to transition right. through. Because again, I think a majority of their money is made on the goods and services that they sell, not so much the gas right. itself. So why not put a few fast chargers in and have people sit there for fifteen minutes? And I mean, I know I stop at the Sheets and the Wawas and the—you know—on my trips, and I go in and. I always buy something that I don't need. So uh, um, it happens when you're charging, too. Yeah. You
0: got to do something. But they're charging. all involved. Yeah.
2: Ex- exactly. All, all, and that's what we always say. It's, you know, it's it's very cliche at this point. I almost hate saying it. But people ask, how long does it take to charge? And it's like, oh, it takes me 20 seconds. I just plug it in. You know, that's not what they're looking for. But it is true. I mean, you if you have a charger at home, you just plug it in every night you know, you pay your 10, 12, 15 cents a kilowatt hour. It's much cheaper than you would pay for gas. Um, or you've, you know, a lot of people find free charging. I find there's a Starbucks down the street from me that I, I stop and charge for a few hours and do some work and it's, it's free. So, yeah, so it's, 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 uh, it's going to be interesting where, where this all plays out. But the the idea is you you just plug and do whatever you're going to do while it's charging. It's not, you know, you don't stand there and wait for the gas to pour in and <laughs> move along your way. And <laughs> so
0: that's fantastic. I mean, I, I just see there's so many windows of opportunity here. You know, how do you keep people entertained for that 15, 20 minutes? And there's going to, I think Shark Tank's going to get really busy uh, with a lot of great ideas in the next few years with this.
2: I agree. It's prime for innovation, that's for sure. But mm-hmm. also the more innovation brings the more cyber, exactly. you know, points of attack and that type of thing. So
1: got to stay ahead of it. Matt, thanks. That was a really valuable information. You know, is there some, where can a, our viewers find out more, or, you yep. know, or creating contact with you?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, my my email is mbianco at fedwayconsulting.com. So M-B-I-A-N-C-O. I love chatting about, you know where things are going and that type of thing. It's it's exciting. Um, and then from a from a ChargePoint perspective, you know their their website has if you want to learn more about levels of charging and different types of offerings. The nice thing about ChargePoint, not to to talk about one brand specifically, but they have home chargers and then they have level two, level three, and they're, then they have their their ultra fast charger that goes up to five hundred kilowatts into a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know three hundred and fifty without without the gel cooled cables but when you get above 350 you have to cool the cables with gel gel cooling capabilities so oh. it won't melt the cord and that type of thing so it's getting that much 500 kilowatts of output is like 2500 miles of range per hour or so so now you're looking at a few minute charge but um, but chargepoint's got that whole realm and they've got the software and the networking capabilities so if you go there you can learn a lot they have lots of really good blogs and things like that too if you want to learn more about gsa I love their fleet team. Um, there's a girl, Stephanie Griselfi, that I've worked with for nine years on this stuff from the office of fleet perspective. Much bigger team now, but if you if you just Google GSA electric vehicles, you'll see their vehicles page. You'll see their their charging station BPA that they've got, and you know different offerings. There's several different manufacturers on that and that type of thing. So that's a good good resource too.
1: Nice from that perspective. Nice, awesome. Well. We'll put everything, we'll put everything in the show notes the so that way people can click on them directly and make it easy.
2: That would be um, awesome. Happy to help you get those links. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks, Matt. Yeah. It's so great having you back on the podcast. I want to make this like a regular thing because things are moving so quickly as, you yeah. know, it's get you back in another nine, 12 months or whatever. And you're like, well, we've already met the goal. And, you know, then what's the next thing? I just, I, right. I love that. I, I love how quickly and aggressively um, this is being pursued. Because um, I think that's what it takes. It's going right? to make a
2: huge impact. Yeah, it's going to make a make a huge impact. And just to FedRAMP update wise, just to take two seconds on that, yeah. ChargePoint will be FedRAMP authorized. They'll get their ATO from GSA probably in the August timeframe. Nice. So they're moving very quickly. They just got their determination in December. I, it might have been September, but we didn't really get moving on until. So it's going to be it's going to be less than a year, which is. Pretty pretty hyper speed when it comes to FedRAMP, as we all know. So um, that'll be done. Um, so maybe you know nine, 12 months, then it'll be all settled in, and, and we can talk about how it's being implemented and working. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. Love that. Yep. Awesome.
1: Definitely.
0: Well, Petco, do you want to bring it home for us today?
1: Sure. This this has been Rachel Lyon and Petco Siang bringing you another episode of To the Points, cybersecurity. Remember to stay informed stay secure, and always stay ahead of the ever-changing threat landscape. Until next time.
0: That's right. Until next time, guys. Thank you.
2: Thanks for having me again.
0: Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on apple podcast, google podcast, spotify or stitcher.